Book First, Part Two of the Joyful Wisdom. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Joyful Wisdom by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. Twenty-two. Lorraine de Jour pour le Roy. The day commences. Let us begin to arrange for this day the business and fates of our most gracious Lord, who at present is still pleased to repose. His Majesty has bad weather today. We shall be careful not to call it bad. We shall not speak of the weather. But we shall go through today's business somewhat more ceremoniously, and make the fates somewhat more festive than would otherwise be necessary. His Majesty may perhaps even be sick. We shall give the last good news of the evening at breakfast, the arrival of M. Montagne, who knows how to joke so pleasantly about his sickness. He suffers from stone. We shall receive several persons. Paren. Persons! What would that old inflated frog, who will be among them, say if he heard this word? Quote, I am no person, end quote, he would say, quote, but always the thing itself, end quote, end paren. and the reception will last longer than is pleasant to anybody, and sufficient reason for telling about the poet who wrote over the door, quote, he who enters here will do me an honour, he who does not, a favour, end quote, that is, forsooth, saying a discourteous thing in a courteous manner. And perhaps this poet is quite justified on this part in being discourteous. They say that the rhymes are better than the rhymester. Well, let him still make many of them, and withdraw himself as much as possible from the world. That is, doubtless, the significance of his well-bred rudeness. A prince, on the other hand, is always more value than his, quote, verse, end quote, even when, but what are we about? We gossip, and the whole court believes that we have already been at work, and racked our brains. There is no light to be seen earlier than that which burns in our window. Hark! Was that not the bell? The devil! The day and the dance commence and we do not know our rounds. We must then improvise, all the world improvises its day. Today, let us for once do like all the world, and therewith vanish my wonderful morning dream, probably owing to the violent strokes of the tower clock, which just then announced the fifth hour with all the importance which is peculiar to it. It seems to me, that on this occasion the god of dreams wanted to make merry over my habits. It is my habit to commence the day by arranging it properly, to make it endurable for myself. And it is possible that I may often have done this too formally, and too much like a prince. 23. The Characteristics of Corruption let us observe the following characteristics in that condition of society from time to time necessarily which is designated by the word quote, corruption unquote. 
immediately upon the appearance of corruption anywhere, a motley superstition gets the upper hand, and the hitherto universal belief of a people becomes colourless and impotent in comparison with it. For superstition is free-thinking of the second rank. He who gives himself over to it selects certain forms and formulae which appeal to him, and permits himself a right of choice. The superstitious man is always much more of a quote, person unquote, in comparison with the religious man, and a superstitious society will be one in which there are many individuals and a delight in individuality. Seen from this standpoint, superstition always appears as a progress in comparison with belief, and a sign that the intellect becomes more independent and claims to have its rights. Those who reverence the old religion and the religious disposition then complain of corruption. They have hitherto also determined the usage of language, and have given a bad repute to superstition, even among the freest spirits. Let us learn that it is a symptom of enlightenment. Secondly, a society in which corruption takes a hold is blamed for effeminacy, for the appreciation of war, and the delight in war perceptibly diminish in such a society, and the conveniences of life are now just as eagerly sought after as were military or gymnastic honours formerly. But one is accustomed to overlook the fact that the old national energy and national passion, which acquired a magnificent splendour in war and in the tourney, has now transferred itself into innumerable private passions, and has merely become less visible. Indeed, in periods of, quote, corruption, unquote, the quantity and quality of the expended energy of a people is probably greater than ever, and the individual spends it lavishly, to such an extent as could not be done formerly. He was not then rich enough to do so, and thus it is precisely in terms of quote, effeminacy unquote, that tragedy runs at large in and out of doors. It is then that ardent love and ardent hatred are born, and the flames of knowledge flash heavenwards in full blaze. Thirdly, as if in amends for the reproach of superstition and effeminacy, it is customary to say of such periods of corruption that they are milder, and that cruelty has greatly diminished in comparison with the older and more credulous and stronger period. But to this praise I am just as little able to assent as to that reproach. I only grant so much, namely that cruelty now becomes more refined, and its older forms are henceforth countered to the taste but the wounding and torturing by word and look reaches its highest development in times of corruption. It is now only that wickedness is created, and the delight in wickedness. The men of the period of corruption are witty and calumnious. They know that there are other ways of murdering than by the dagger and the ambush. They know also that all that is well said is believed in.
Fourthly, it is when quote, morals decay unquote, that those beings who one call tyrants first make their appearance. They are the forerunners of the individual, and as it were, early matured firstlings. Yet a little while, and this fruit of fruits hang ripe and yellow on the tree of a people. And only for the sake of such fruit did this tree exist. When the decay has reached its worst, and likewise the conflict of all sorts of tyrants, there always arises the Caesar, the final tyrant, who puts an end to the exhausted struggle for sovereignty by making the exhaustedness work for him. In his time the individual is usually most mature, and consequently the quote, culture unquote, is highest and most fruitful, but not on his account, nor through him. Although the men of highest culture love to flatter their Caesar by pretending that they are his creation. The truth, however, is that they need quietness externally, because internally they have disquietude and labour. In these times bribery and treason are at their height, for the love of the ego, then first discovered, is much more powerful than the love of the old, used-up, hackneyed, quote, fatherland, unquote, and the need to be secure in one way or other against the frightful fluctuations of fortune opens even the nobler hands as soon as the richer and more powerful person shows himself ready to put gold into them. There is then so little certainty with regard to the future. People live only for the day, a condition of mind which enables every deceiver to play an easy game. People, of course, only let themselves be misled and bribed, quote, for the present, unquote, and reserve for themselves futurity and virtue. The individuals, as is well known, the men who only live for themselves, provide for the moment much more than do their opposites, the gregarious man, because they consider themselves just as incalculable as the future, and similarly they attach themselves willingly to despots, because they believe themselves capable of activities and expedients, which can neither reckon on being understood by the multitude, nor on finding favour with them. But the tyrant, or the Caesar, understands the rights of the individuals even in this excess, and has interest in speaking on behalf of a bolder private morality, and even in giving his hand to it. For he thinks of himself, and wishes people to think of what Napoleon once uttered in his classical style, quote, I have the right to answer by an eternal, thus I am, to everything about which complaint is brought against me. I am apart from all the world, I accept conditions from nobody. I wish people also to submit to my fancies, and to take it quite as a simple matter, if I should indulge in this or that diversion." Thus spoke Napoleon once to his wife, when she had reasons for calling into question the fidelity of her husband. The times of corruption are the seasons where the apples fall from the tree, I mean the individuals, the seed-bearers of the future the pioneers of spiritual colonization, 
and of a new construction of national and social unions. Corruption is only an abusive term for the harvest time of a people. 24. Different Dissatisfactions The feeble, and as it were the feminine dissatisfied people, have ingenuity for beautifying and deepening life. The strong dissatisfied people, the masculine persons among them, to continue the metaphor, have ingenuity for improving and safeguarding life. The former show their weakness and feminine character by willingly let themselves be temporarily deceived, and perhaps even by putting up with a little ecstasy and enthusiasm on a time. But on the whole they are never to be satisfied, and suffer from the incurability of their dissatisfaction. Moreover, they are the patrons of all those who manage to concoct opiate and narcotic comforts, and just on that account are averse to those who value the physician higher than the priest. They thereby encourage the continuance of actual distress. If there had not been a surplus of dissatisfied persons of this kind in Europe since the time of the Middle Ages, the remarkable capacity for Europeans for constant transformation would perhaps not have originated at all, for the claims of the strong dissatisfied persons are too gross and really too modest to resist being finally quietened down. China is an instance of a country in which dissatisfaction on a grand scale and capacity for transformation have died out for many centuries and the socialists and state idolaters of Europe could easily bring things to Chinese conditions and to a Chinese, quote, happiness, unquote, with their measures for the amelioration and security of life, provided they could first of all root out the sicklier, tenderer, more feminine dissatisfaction and romanticism, which is still very abundant among us. Europe is an invalid, who owes her best thanks to her incurability and the eternal transformations of her sufferings. These constant new situations, these equally constant new dangers, pains and makeshifts, have at last generated an intellectual sensitiveness which is almost equal to genius, and is in any case the mother of all genius. 25 not preordained to knowledge. There is a purblind humility not at all rare, and when a person is afflicted with it, he is once for all unqualified from being a disciple of knowledge. It is this, in fact. The moment a man of this kind perceives anything striking, he turns, as it were, on his heel, and says to himself, quote, You have deceived yourself. Where have your wits been? This cannot be the truth." Unquote. And then instead of looking at it and listening to it with more attention, he runs out of the way of the striking object as if intimidated, and seeks to get it out of his head as quickly as possible. For his fundamental rule runs thus, quote, I want to see nothing that contradicts the usual opinion concerning things. Am I created for the purpose of discovering new truths? There are already too many of the old ones. Unquote. Twenty six. What is living? 
living. That is to continually eliminate from ourselves what is about to die, living. That is to be cruel and inexorable towards all that becomes weak and old in ourselves, and not only in ourselves, living. That means, therefore, to be without piety toward the dying, the wretched, and the old? To be continually a murderer? And yet old Moses said, quote, Thou shalt not kill! Unquote. Twenty-seven. The Self-Renouncer What does the self-renouncer do? He strives after a higher world. He wants to fly longer and further and higher than all the men of affirmation. He throws away many things that would burden his flight, and several things among them that are not valueless, that are not unpleasant to him. He sacrifices them to his desire for elevation. Now this sacrificing, this casting away, is the very thing that becomes visible in him, on that account one calls him a self-renouncer, and as such he stands before us, enveloped in his cowl, and as the sole of the hair-shirt. With this effect, however, which he makes upon us, he is well content. He wants to keep concealed from us his desire, his pride, his intention of flying above us. Yes, he is wiser than we thought, and so courteous towards us, this affirmer. For that is what he is, like us, even in his self-renunciation. Twenty-eight. Injuring with one's best qualities. Our strong points sometimes drive us so far forward that we cannot any longer endure our weakness, and we perish by them. We also perhaps see this result beforehand, but nevertheless do not want it to be otherwise. We then become hard towards that which would fain be spared in us, and our pitilessness is also our greatness. Such an experience, which must in the end cost us our life, is a symbol of the collective effect of great men upon others, and upon their epoch. It is just with their best abilities, with that which only they can do, that they destroy much that is weak, uncertain, evolving, and willing, and are thereby injurious. Indeed, the case may happen in which, taken on the whole, they do only injury, because their best is accepted and drunk up, as it were solely by those who lose their understanding and their egotism by it, as by too strong a beverage. They become so intoxicated that they go breaking their limbs on all the wrong roads where their drunkenness drives them. 29. Adventitious Liars When people began to combat the unity of Aristotle in France, and consequently also to defend it, there was once more to be seen that which has been seen so often, but seen so unwillingly, People impose false reasons on themselves, on account of which those laws ought to exist, merely for the sake of not acknowledging to themselves that they had accustomed themselves to the authority of those laws, 
and did not want any longer to have things otherwise. And people do so in every prevailing morality and religion, and have always done so. The reasons and intentions behind the habit are only added surreptitiously when people begin to combat the habit and ask for reasons and intentions. It is here that the great dishonesty of the conservatives of all times hide. They are adventitious liars. Thirty, the comedy of the celebrated man. Celebrated men who need their fame, as, for instance, all politicians, no longer select their associates and friends without afterthoughts. From the one they want a portion of the splendor and reflection of his virtues. From the other they want the fear-inspiring power of certain dubious qualities in him of which everybody is aware. From another they steal his reputation for idleness and basking in the sun, because it is advantageous for their own ends to be regarded temporarily as heedless and lazy. It conceals the fact that they lie in ambush. They now use the visionaries, now the experts, now the brooders, now the pedants in the neighborhood, as their actual selves for the time but very soon they do not need them any longer. And thus while their environment and outside die off continually, everything seems to crowd into this environment and wants to become a, quote, character, unquote, of it. They are like the great cities in this respect. Their repute is continually in a process of mutation, like their character, for their changing methods require this change, and they show and exhibit sometimes this and sometimes that actual or fictitious quality on the stage. Their friends and associates, as we have said, belong to these stage properties. On the other hand, that which they aim at must remain so much the more steadfast and burnished and resplendent in the distance, and this also sometimes needs its comedy and its stage play. thirty one commerce and nobility buying and selling is now regarded as something ordinary like the art of reading and writing everyone is now trained to it even when he is not a tradesman exercising himself daily in the art precisely as formerly in the period of uncivilized humanity everyone was a hunter and exercised himself day by day in the art of hunting Hunting was then something common, but just as this finally became a privilege of the powerful and noble, and thereby lost the character of the commonplace and the ordinary, by ceasing to be necessary, and by becoming an affair of fancy and luxury, so it might become the same some day with buying and selling. Conditions of society are imaginable in which there will be no selling and buying and in which the necessity for this art will become quite lost. Perhaps it may then happen that individuals who are less subjected to the law of the prevailing condition of things will indulge in buying and selling as a luxury of sentiment. It is then only that commerce would acquire nobility, and the noble 
would then perhaps occupy themselves just as readily with commerce as they have done hitherto with war and politics, while on the other hand the valuation of politics might then have entirely altered. Already even politics ceases to be the business of a gentleman, and it is possible that one day it may be found to be so vulgar as to be brought like all party literature and daily literature under the rubric, quote, prostitution of the intellect, unquote. 32. Undesirable Disciples What should I do with these two youths, called out the philosopher dejectedly, who, quote, corrupted, unquote, youths, as Socrates had once corrupted them? They are unwelcome disciples to me. One of them cannot say, quote, nay, unquote, and the other says, quote, half and half, unquote, to everything. Provided they grasp my doctrine, the former would suffer too much, for my mode of thinking requires a martial soul, willingness to cause pain, delight in denying, and a hard skin. He would succumb by open wounds and internal injuries, and the other would choose the mediocre in everything he represents, and thus make a mediocrity of the whole. I should like my enemy to have such a disciple. 33. Outside the Lecture Room Quote, In order to prove that man after all belongs to the good-natured animals, I would remind you how credulous he has been for so long a time. It is now only, quite late, and after immense self-conquest, that he has become a distrustful animal. Yes, man is now more wicked than ever. End quote. I do not understand this. Why should man now be more distrustful and more wicked? Quote, because now he has science, because he needs to have it. Unquote. 34. Historia abscondita. Every great man has a power which operates backward. All history is again placed on the scales on his account, and a thousand secrets of the past crawl out of their lurking places into his sunlight. There is absolutely no knowing what history may be some day. The past is still perhaps undiscovered in its essence. There are yet so many retroactive powers needed. 35. Heresy and Witchcraft To think otherwise than is customary, that is by no means so much the activity of a better intellect, as the activity of strong, wicked inclinations, severing, isolating, refractory, mischief-loving, malicious inclinations. Heresy is the counterpart of witchcraft, and is certainly just as little a merely harmless affair, or a thing worthy of honour in itself. Heretics and sorcerers are two kinds of bad men. They have it in common that they also feel themselves wicked. Their unconquerable delight is to attack and injure whatever rules, 
whether it be men or opinions. The Reformation, a kind of duplication of the spirit of the Middle Ages, at a time when it had no longer a good conscience, produced both of these kinds of people in the greatest profusion. Thirty-six. Last Words It will be recollected that the Emperor Augustus, that terrible man, who had himself as much in his power, and could be silent as well as any wise Socrates, became indiscreet about himself in his last words. For the first time he let his mask fall, when he gave to understand that he had carried a mask and played a comedy. He had played the father of his country, and wisdom on the throne well, even to the point of illusion. Palaudite amici, comoedia vanita est, the thought of the dying Nero, qualis artifix pero, was also the thought of the dying Augustus, histrionic conceit, histrionic loquacity, and the very counterpart to the dying Socrates, but Tiberius died suddenly, that most tortured of all self-torturers, he was genuine and not a stage-player. What may have passed through his head at the end, perhaps this, quote, Life, that is a long death. I am a fool who shortened the lives of so many. Was I created for the purpose of being a benefactor? I should have given them eternal life, and then could I have seen them dying eternally. I had such good eyes for that, qualis spectator pero, end quote. When he seemed once more to regain his powers after a long death struggle, it was considered advisable to smother him with pillows. He died a double death. 37. Owing to three errors. Science has been furthered during recent centuries, partly because it was hoped that God's goodness and wisdom would be best understood therewith and thereby. The principal motive in the soul of great Englishmen, paren, like Newton, and paren, partly because the absolute utility of knowledge was believed in, and especially the most intimate connection of morality, knowledge, and happiness. The principal motive in the soul of great Frenchmen, Paren, like Voltaire and Paren, and partly because it was the thought that in science there was something unselfish, harmless, self-sufficing, lovable, and truly innocent to be had, in which the evil human impulses did not at all participate. The principal motive in the soul of Spinoza, who felt himself divine as a knowing being, it was consequently owing to three errors that science has been furthered. 38. Explosive People When one considers how ready are the forces of young men for discharge, one does not wonder at seeing them decide so unfastidiously and with so little selection for this or that cause, that which attracts them is the sight of eagerness about any cause, as it were the sight of the burning match, not the cause itself. 
The more ingenious seducers on that account operate by holding out the prospect of an explosion to such persons, and do not urge their cause by means of reason. These powder barrels are not to be won over by means of reasons. 39. Altered Taste The alteration of the general taste is more important than the alteration of opinions. Opinions, with all their proving, refuting, and intellectual masquerade, are merely symptoms of altered taste, and are certainly not what they are still so often claimed to be, the causes of the altered taste. How does the general taste alter? By the fact of individuals, the powerful and influential persons, expressing and tyrannically enforcing, without any feeling of shame, their hoc est ridiculum, hoc est absurdum. The decisions, therefore, of their taste and their de-relish, they thereby lay a constraint upon many people, out of which there gradually grows a habituation for still more, and finally a necessity for all. The fact, however, that these individuals feel and, quote, taste, unquote, differently, has usually its origin in a peculiarity of their mode of life, nourishment, or digestion. Perhaps a surplus or deficiency of the inorganic salts in their blood and brain. In short, in their physis. They have, however, the courage to avow their physical constitution, and to lend an ear even to the most delicate tones of its requirements. Their aesthetic and moral judgments are those Quote, most delicate tones, unquote, of their physis. 40. The lack of a noble presence. Soldiers and their leaders have always a much higher mode of comportment towards one another than workmen and their employers. At present, at least, all militarily established civilizations still stand high above all so-called industrial civilization. The latter, in its present form, is in general the meanest mode of existence that has ever been. It is simply the law of necessity that operates here. People want to live, and they have to sell themselves, but they despise him who exploits their necessity and purchases the workman. It is curious that the subjection to powerful, fear-inspiring, and even dreadful individuals, to tyrants and leaders of armies, is not at all felt so painfully as a subjection to such undistinguished and uninteresting persons as the captains of industry. In the employer, the workman usually sees merely a crafty, blood-sucking dog of a man, speculating on every necessity, whose name, form, character, and reputation are altogether indifferent to him. It is probable that manufacturers and the great magnates of commerce have hitherto lacked too much all of those forms and attributes of a superior race, which alone makes persons interesting. If they had had the nobility of the nobly born in their looks and bearing, there would perhaps have been no socialism in the masses of the people. For these are really ready for slavery of every kind, Providing that the superior class above them constantly shows itself legitimately superior, and born to command, by its noble presence. The commonest man feels that nobility is not to be improvised. 
and that it is his part to honour it as the fruit of protracted race culture. But the absence of superior presence, and the notorious vulgarity of manufacturers with red, fat hands, brings up the thought to him that it is only chance and fortune that here has elevated the one above the other. Well then, so he reasons himself, let us, in our turn, tempt chance and fortune. Let us, in our own turn, throw the dice. And socialism commences. 41. Against Remorse The thinker sees in his own actions attempts and questionings to obtain information about something or other. Success and failure are answers to him first and foremost, to vex himself, however, because something does not succeed, or to feel remorse at all. He leaves that to those who act because they are commanded to do so, and expect to get a beating when their gracious master is not satisfied with the result. 42. Work and Ennui In respect to seeking work for the sake of the pay, Almost all men are alike at present in civilized countries. To all of them work is a means, and not itself the end, in which account they are not very selective in the choice of the work, providing it yields an abundant profit. But still there are rarer men, who would rather perish than work without delight in their labor. The fastidious people, difficult to satisfy, whose object is not served by an abundant profit, unless the work itself be the reward of all rewards. Artists and contemplative men of all kinds belong to this rare species of human beings, and also the idlers who spend their life in hunting and travelling, or in love affairs and adventures. They all seek toil and trouble in so far as these are associated with pleasure, and they want the severest and hardest labour, if it be necessary. In other respects, however, they have a resolute indolence, even should impoverishment, dishonour, and danger to health and life be associated therewith. They are not so much afraid of ennui as of labour without pleasure. Indeed, they require as much ennui if their work is to succeed with them. For the thinker, and for all inventive spirits, ennui is the unpleasant, quote, calm, unquote, of the soul which precedes the happy voyage, and the dancing breeze. He must endure it, he must await the effect it has on him. It is precisely this which lesser natures cannot at all experience. It is common to scare away ennui in every way, just as it is common to labour without pleasure. It perhaps distinguishes the Asiatics above the Europeans, that they are capable of a longer and profounder repose. Even their narcotics operate slowly and require patience, in contrast to the obnoxious suddenness of the European poison, alcohol. 43. What the laws betray one makes a great mistake when one studies the penal laws of a people as if they were an expression of its character. The laws do not portray what a people is, but what appears to them foreign, strange, monstrous, and outlandish. 
the laws concern themselves with the exceptions to the morality of custom and the severest punishments fall on acts which conform to the customs of the neighboring peoples thus among the wahhabites there are only two mortal sins having another god than the wahhabite god and smoking Paren. it is designated by them as quote, the disgraceful kind of drinking unquote, in Paren. Quote, and how is it with regard to murder and adultery End quote, asks the englishman with astonishment on learning these things quote, well god is gracious and pitiful unquote, answered the old chief thus among the ancient romans there was an idea that a woman could only sin mortally in two ways by adultery on the one hand and by wine drinking on the other old cato pretended that kissing among relatives had only been made a custom in order to keep women under control on this point a kiss meant did her breath smell of wine wives had actually been punished by death who were surprised taking wine and certainly not merely because women under the influence of wine sometimes unlearned altogether the art of saying no the romans were afraid above all things of the orgiastic and dionysian spirits with which the woman of southern europe at that time paren when wine was still new in europe end paren was sometimes visited as by a monstrous foreignness which subverts the basis of roman sentiments it seemed to them treason against rome as the embodiment of foreignness forty four the believed motive however important it may be to know the motives according to which mankind has really acted hitherto perhaps the belief in this or that motive and therefore that which mankind has assumed and imagined to be the actual mainspring of its activity hitherto is something still more essential for the thinker to know for the eternal happiness and misery of men have always come to them through their belief in this or that motive not however through that which was actually the motive all about the latter has an interest of the second rank 45. Epicurus. Yes, I am proud of perceiving the character of Epicurus differently from anyone else, perhaps, and of enjoying the happiness of the afternoon of antiquity in all that I hear and read of him. I see his eye gazing out on a broad whitish sea, over the shore rocks on which the sunshine rests, while great and small creatures play in its light, secure and calm like this light and that eye itself such happiness could only have been devised by a chronic sufferer the happiness of an eye before which the sea of existence has become calm which can no longer tire of gazing at the surface and at the variegated tender tremulous skin of this sea never previously was there such a moderation of a voluptuousness 46. Our astonishment. There is a profound and fundamental satisfaction in the fact that science ascertains things that hold their ground, and again furnish the basis for new researches. It could certainly be otherwise. 
Indeed, we are so much convinced of all this uncertainty and caprice of our judgments, and of the everlasting change of all human laws and conceptions, that we are really astounded how persistently the results of science hold their ground. In earlier times people knew nothing of this changeability of all human things. The custom of morality maintained the belief that the whole inner life of man was bound to iron necessity by eternal fetters. Perhaps people then felt a similar voluptuousness of astonishment when they listened to tales and fairy stories. The wonderful did so much good to those men, who might well get tired sometimes of the regular and the eternal, to leave the ground for once, to soar, to stray, to be mad. That belonged to the paradise and the revelry of earlier times, while our felicity is like that of the shipwrecked man who has gone ashore, and places himself with both feet on the old firm ground, in astonishment that it does not rock. 47. The Suppression of the Passions When one continually prohibits the expression of the passions as something to be left to the, quote, vulgar, unquote, the coarser, bourgeois, and peasant natures, that is, when one does not want to suppress the passions themselves, but only their language and demeanour, one nevertheless realises therewith just what one does not want, the suppression of the passions themselves, or at least their weakening and alteration, as in the court of Louis the Fourteenth, Paren, to cite the most instructive instance, and Paren, and all that was dependent on it, experienced. The generation that followed, trained in suppressing their expression, no longer possessed the passions themselves, but had a pleasant, superficial, playful disposition in their place, a generation which was so permeated with the incapacity to be ill-mannered, that even an injury was not taken and retaliated except with courteous words. Perhaps our own time furnished the most remarkable counterpart to this period. I see everywhere, paren, in life, the theatre, and not least of all that which is written, en paren, Satisfaction at all, the coarser outbursts and gestures of passion. A certain convention of passionateness is now desired, not only the passion itself. Nevertheless, it will thereby be at last reached, and our posterity will have a genuine savagery, and not merely a formal savagery, and a manliness. 48. Knowledge of Distress Perhaps there is nothing by which men and periods are so much separated from one another as by the different degrees of knowledge of distress which they possess, distress of the soul as well as of the body. With respect to the latter, owing to the lack of sufficient self-experience, we men of the present day, paren, in spite of our deficiencies and infirmities, and paren, are perhaps all of us blunderers and visionaries in comparison with the man of the age of fear, the longest of all ages, when the individual had to protect himself against violence, and for that purpose had to be a man of violence himself. 
At that time a man went through a long schooling of corporeal tortures and privations, and found even in a certain kind of cruelty towards himself, in a voluntary use of pain, a necessary means for his preservation. At that time a person trained his environment to the endurance of pain. At that time a person willingly inflicted pain, and saw the most frightful things of this kind happening to others, without having any other feeling than for his own security. As regards to the distress of the soul, however, I now look at every man with respect to whether he knows it by experience or by description, whether he still regards it as necessary to stimulate this knowledge, perhaps as an indication of more refined culture, or whether, at the bottom of his heart, he does not at all believe in the great sorrows of soul, and at the naming of them has in his mind a similar experience, as at the naming of great corporeal sufferings, such as toothaches and stomachaches. It is thus, however, that it seems to be with most peoples at present. Owing to the universal inexperience of both kinds of pain, and the comparative rarity of the spectacle of the sufferer, an important consequence results. People now hate pain far more than an earlier man did, and calumniate it worse than ever. People nowadays can hardly endure the thought of pain, and make out of it an affair of conscience and a reproach to collective existence. The appearance of pessimistic philosophies is not at all the sign of great and dreadful miseries. For these interrogative marks regard the worth of life appearing in periods when the refinement and alleviation of existence already deem the unavoidable gnatstings of the soul and body as altogether too bloody and wicked, and in the poverty of actual experiences of pain, would now like to make painful general ideas appear as suffering of the worst kind. There might indeed be a remedy for pessimistic philosophies and the excessive sensibility which seems to me the real quote, distress of the present. Unquote. But perhaps this remedy already sounds too cruel, and would itself be reckoned among the symptoms owing to which people at present conclude that quote, existence is something evil. Unquote. Well, the remedy for quote, the distress unquote, is. Distress. 49. Magnanimity and allied qualities. Those paradoxical phenomena, such as the sudden coldness in the demeanour of good-natured men, the humour of the melancholy, and above all, magnanimity, as a sudden renunciation of revenge, or of the gratification of envy appear in men to whom there is a powerful inner impulsiveness. In men of sudden satiety and sudden disgust, their satisfactions are so rapid and violent that satiety, aversion and flight into the antithetical taste immediately follow upon them. In this contrast the convulsion of feeling liberates itself in one person by sudden coldness, in another by laughter and in a third by tears and self-sacrifice. The magnanimous person appears to me at least that kind of magnanimous person who has always made most impression, 
as a man with the strongest thirst for vengeance, to whom a gratification presents itself close at hand, and who already drinks it off in imagination so copiously, thoroughly, and to the last drop, that an excessive, rapid disgust follows this rapid licentiousness. He now elevates himself, quote, above himself, unquote, as one says, and forgives his enemy, yea, blesses and honours him. With this violence done to himself, however, with this mockery of his impulse to revenge, even still so powerful, he merely yields to a new impulse, the disgust which has become powerful, and does this just as impatiently and licentiously as a short time previously he forestalled, and as it were exhausted, the joy of revenge with his fantasy, in magnanimity, there is the same amount of egotism as in revenge, but a different quality of egotism. 50. The Argument of Isolation The reproach of conscience, even in the most conscientious, is weak against the feeling, quote, this and that of contrary to the good morals of your society, unquote. A cold glance or a wry mouth on the part of those among whom and for whom one has been educated is still feared even by the strongest. What is really feared there? Isolation, as the argument which demolishes even the best arguments for a person or cause. It is thus that the gregarious instinct speaks in us. 51. Sense for Truth Commend me to all scepticism where I am permitted to answer, quote, Let us put it to the test, unquote. But I do not wish to hear anything more of things and questions which do not admit of being tested. That is the limit of my, quote, Sense for Truth, unquote, for bravery has there lost its right. 52. What others know of us? That which we know of ourselves, and have in our memory, is not so decisive for the happiness of our life, as is generally believed. One day it flashes upon our mind what others know of us, paren, or think they know, en paren, and then we acknowledge that it is the more powerful, we get on with our bad conscience more easily than with our bad reputation. 53. Where goodness begins. Where bad eyesight can no longer see the evil impulse as such on account of its refinement, there men sets up the kingdom of goodness, and the feeling of having now gone over into the kingdom of goodness brings all those impulses, paren, such as the feelings of security, of comfortableness, of benevolence, and paren, into simultaneous activity, which were threatened and confined by the evil impulses. Consequently, the duller the eye, so much the further does goodness extend. Hence the eternal cheerfulness of the populace and of children. Hence the gloominess and grief, paren, allied to the bad conscience, and paren, of great thinkers. 54. 
the consciousness of appearance. How wonderfully and novelly, and at the same time how awfully and ironically do I feel myself situated with respect to collective existence, with my knowledge. I have discovered for myself that the old humanity and animality, yea, the collective primeval age, and the past of all sentient being, continues to mediate love, hate, and reason in me. I have suddenly awoke in the midst of this dream, but merely to the consciousness that I just dream, and that I must dream on in order not to perish, just as the sleepwalker must dream on in order not to tumble down. What is it that is now, quote, appearance, unquote, to me? Verily, not the antithesis of any kind of essence, what knowledge can I assert of any kind of essence whatsoever, except merely the predicates of its appearance? Verily not a dead mask which one could put upon an unknown X, and which to be sure one could also remove. Appearance is for me the operating and living thing itself, which goes so far in its self-mockery as to make me feel that here there is appearance, and will-o'-the-wisp, and spirit-dance, and nothing more. That among all these dreamers, I also, the, quote, thinker, unquote, dance my dance, that the thinker as a means of prolonging further the terrestrial dance, and in so far as one of the masters of ceremony of existence, and that the sublime consistency and connectedness of all branches of knowledge is perhaps, and will perhaps, be the best means of maintaining the universality of the dreaming, the complete mutual understandability of all those dreamers, and thereby the duration of the dream. 55. The Ultimate Nobility of Character What then makes a person, quote, noble, unquote? Certainly not that he makes sacrifices. Even the frantic libertine makes sacrifices. Certainly not that he generally follows his passions. There are contemptible passions. Certainly not that he does something for others and without selfishness. Perhaps the effect of selfishness is precisely at its greatest in the noblest persons but that the passion which seizes the noble man is a peculiarity, without his knowing that it is so. The use of a rare and singular measuring rod, almost a frenzy, the feeling of heat in things which feel cold to all other persons, a divining of values for which scales have not yet been invented, a sacrificing on altars which are consecrated to an unknown god, a bravery without the desire for honour, a self-sufficiency which has superabundance, and imparts to men and things. Hitherto, therefore, it has been the rare in man, and the unconsciousness of this rareness that has made men noble. Here, however, let us consider that everything ordinary, immediate, and indispensable, in short, what has been most preservative of the species, and generally the rule in mankind hitherto, 
has been judged unreasonable and calumniated in its entirety by this standard, in favour of the exceptions. To become the advocate of the rule, that may perhaps be the ultimate form and refinement in which nobility of character will reveal itself on earth. fifty six the desire for suffering when i think of the desire to do something how it continually tickles and stimulates millions of young europeans who cannot endure themselves and all their ennui i conceive that there must be a desire in them to suffer something in order to derive from their suffering a worthy motive for acting for doing something distress is necessary Hence the cry of the politicians, hence the many false, trumped-up, exaggerated, quote, states of distress, unquote, of all possible kinds, and the blind readiness to believe in them. This young world desires that there should arrive, or to appear, from the outside, not happiness, but misfortune, and their imagination is already busy beforehand to form a monster out of it so that they may afterwards be able to fight with a monster. If these distress-seekers felt the power to benefit themselves, to do something for themselves from internal sources, they would also understand how to create a distress of their own, especially their own, from internal sources. Their invention might then be more refined, and their gratifications might sound like good music, while at present they fill the world with their cries of distress, and consequently too often with the feeling of distress in the first place. They do not know what to make of themselves, and so they paint the misfortune of others on the wall. They always need others, and always again others, others. Pardon me, my friends, I have ventured to paint my happiness on the wall. End of book first.